Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of us all, have mercy upon us now as, as your word is opened. We pray that your spirit would have his way with us, that we would be undistracted, wholly devoted. We ask this Christ in your name. Amen. If you would like to open your Bibles up to the book of Isaiah, that's where we'll be spending our time today. But uh, before we do that, I'd like to see if we could recover a sense of the forest amidst the trees. Um, Remember, we've been talking about the Bible as a drama that unfolds in six great acts. Act one was creation. Act two was uncreation when sin entered the picture. And we've been learning these just based on these six key words that are colored up there on the screen for you. The third act consumes the lion's share of the Old Testament. It's, it's God's redemptive mercy on display when he chose Israel and he's making ready for the great king. And, and that's where we find ourselves in the unfolding drama that is the Bible. We're still in that great third act as we get ready for the king. Now, just to give you a sense for time, you've seen this before if you've been with us in this series. Um, From the Exodus through the end of the Old Testament unfolds over about a thousand-year period, probably. And 1446 is that Exodus event as God's people were delivered miraculously from Egypt. And then, but about 9.30, the kingdom divides into two groups, Israel and Judah. This is not good. This is the Old Testament version of a really nasty church split. That's what this is, okay? It's a great tragedy am- amongst God's people. Then, in discipline and judgment for their disobedience to God, about the year 722, that northern kingdom of Israel falls into captivity. And then for the same reasons... Um, Down a little bit later, 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah falls. And all God's people are in captivity. But then, about 50 years after they're put in captivity, a remnant returns to Jerusalem. And the Old Testament closes out with the book of Malachi about the year 400 as they wait for the king, for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this story all pretty much unfolds through the historical books, the books that tell the story. We've entered into a different kind of literature. We're, we've been exploring wisdom books like Proverbs and the Psalms. Um, and today we enter the prophetic books, all these great prophets. And I want you to get a sense for where they fit in this story, which is pretty much everywhere. The book of Job is ancient. Uh, comes back probably before the Exodus. And Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the Song of Song, if they're rightly associated mostly with Solomon, those happen right there before uh, the year 930 when the kingdom divides. The prophets come a little bit later, and through all of these means, God is bringing wisdom to his people so that they can share in his great mission and live lives that honor him. The prophets And the wisdom literature serve that purpose for us. They align us with God's heart and his mission and let us live lives that are useful to him. 
And you can think of it this way, um, because I'm a reformed civil engineer. Well, actually, let me, let me go over that first. The mission of God, we've been putting in these, this kind of language. The Bible tells the story of the loving and awesome words and deeds of God to redeem all of his creation, especially his wayward and sinful people from amongst all peoples for his name's sake. That's really what this story is all about that we're watching unfold. Now, to think about how the prophets and the wisdom writers fit into that, because I'm a reformed civil engineer, I found a cross-section of pavement of an ancient Roman road. This is how I want you to think about what the, what the prophets and the wisdom writers do for us. You want to stay up here on the pavement, and the goal is to stay out of the ditch, okay? It's pretty complicated. I'll go over it again. You want to stay up here when you're driving on the pavement. You want to stay out of these areas known even to the Romans as the ditch, okay? You got it. You want to stay out of the ditch, okay? I think you're picking up on it. Stay out of the ditch, That's our goal. Yes, indeed, stay out of the ditch. It's harder than you think at times, but you want to stay out of the ditch. Okay? A stretch of road affectionately known as the highway of death. Um, stay, Stay on God's path. Walk with Him. Share in His mission. Sin takes us out of that and into His path. And these... um, These wisdom writers help us stay on the path. Consider Proverbs chapter 6. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Now that's some wisdom that can keep you off a pretty deep ditch right there. And some of you need exactly that word of wisdom today. That's why God providentially had me choose that as an example of how wisdom saves you. Now, the prophets do a similar thing. They help us stay on God's path when they speak about the future, what awaits us in the future, both positively and negatively. That's incentive to stay out of the ditch, stay on the path. Consider Um, the prophet Isaiah we're going to look at today. He says, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Okay, now there's incentive to stay out of the ditch. Okay? With fire and sword, he will execute judgment upon all men. And so the prophets join with the wisdom writers, and they give us incentive to stay on that path. But the prophets uh, actually are able to do another facet that the wisdom writers did not do so much. And that is they actually help us when we find ourselves in the ditch, um, such as this hapless soul. In his four-wheel drive Jeep, he find himself looking rather silly in the ditch. And inevitably, we find ourselves there, and the prophets issue the strongest of warnings and actually enable us. This is what the prophets do. They enable us to get out of the ditch that our sin has taken us in 
so that we can participate again in God's beautiful plan and mission for our lives. Consider what Ezekiel the prophet says. He says, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed. Get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So today we want to ready ourselves to hear from one who's called the Prince of Prophets, the prophet Isaiah. And at the core of his message is this great redemptive word, repent, turn from your sin. And so at the beginning of our time, you need to ready yourselves so that by the end of the time, there's a willingness in your heart to turn from your sin and repent. This is at the heart of the message that the prophets bring to us. Today when we talk about Isaiah, it's helpful for us to think about Isaiah in two parts. Um, Not that there are two Isaiahs or anything like that, but the book falls into two main parts. Really, the first 39 chapters are sometimes called the book of judgment because that's a primary emphasis in those chapters if you were to read them. The latter 27 chapters are sometimes called the book of comfort or the book of hope because, again, that great emphasis becomes preeminent. And some people say Isaiah is like a miniature Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah represent the 39 books of the Old Testament with a great emphasis on the judgment of God. Not exclusive by any means, but a great emphasis on that. And the last 27 chapters represent the 27 books of the New Testament with a great, though not exclusive, emphasis on the comfort and the hope and the mercy of God. But let's think about that first section first, the book of judgment, those first 39 chapters. Isaiah starts this way. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. What he does there is he dates his message. He gives us some historical markers so we know when he's writing. And you can fit Isaiah in here, okay, in, the, in, in history. He's writing, his ministry starts just before the northern kingdom falls into captivity and continues on past that and looks to the day when the southern kingdom will also fall into captivity. That's where Isaiah is bringing his message um, to his people. Um, The northern kingdom is taken captive by Assyria during Isaiah's preaching. It's not a happy time. The Assyrians were probably the last people on earth you'd want to be taken captive by. And the southern kingdom of Judah is threatened and God's people have strayed far from him. And as a result, they are blistered by Isaiah right out of the blocks. Listen to what Isaiah says about God's people. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me, God says. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, 
a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. This is the condition of God's people at this time. And this is how God feels about the worship they offer. A little bit later in chapter 1, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear, God says, your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then later on, he says this. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. God hates the worship that his people are offering. Why? Well, there are many reasons. Some you heard embedded in that. But among them, especially, were neglect of the poor. That tainted God's people's worship. Um, writer and, and pastor Joe Stoll, a man I, I have great respect for, tells this story. He writes about a Chicago-based newspaper called Streetwise. It's sold by homeless people, he says, who collect a portion of the proceeds. He says, one day as I walked to work, I passed a Streetwise vendor, and it was a bitterly cold Chicago January morning. I'd already stopped by Starbucks and paid more than a buck for a measly cup of coffee, he says. And feeling noble, I struggled to find my wallet, reached in, and took out a dollar to buy the Streetwise. The homeless woman asked, do you really want the paper, or can I keep it to sell to someone else? He said, keep the paper. And then he asked her, how are you today? She said, I'm so cold. He said, well, I hope the sun comes out, it warms up, and you have a good day. And as he continued on down the street with a cup of coffee warming his hand, about a half a block later, the conversation finally registered, he said. I wrestled for a moment with what I should do, but I was late, so I kept walking. Ever since, he says, I've regretted not giving her a cup of hot coffee in Christ's name. And I wonder, wonder if we'll feel the same way. You know, when we look back and realize that this month there are 80,000 dead in China and 5 million people homeless from that earthquake. And just around the bend in Myanmar, in Burma, there are hundreds of thousands who are dead from that cyclone. I mean, we look back and wonder, why didn't I help? In their great hour of misery and need, why didn't I help? 
Why did I keep walking? But more importantly, I wonder if God will reject our worship because all we said was, hope the sun comes out and you have a really nice day over there. Could it be said of you? I mean, honestly, if somebody looked at your life, could it be said of you that you are neglecting the poor and the needy while you build a life of luxury for yourself? Well, I want you to know that Rob, is, Rob Craig is charting a path for you to be generous to these two great needs in our day. And you'll be hearing about those in weeks ahead, a path for you to be generous to these people, to offer just a cup of cold water or a cup of hot coffee in the name of Christ to these people who are in such great need. Um, Long ago, someone said, uh, soul worship is the soul of worship. He said, if you take away the soul from the worship, you have killed the worship. Wonder, could it be said of us that we come near to God with our mouth and we honor Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him? Is what we offer Today in this room, heartless, dispassionate, hands in my pockets, wish I was on the golf course or maybe even working in the yard rather than being here, kind of worship. Did we even take five quiet, repentant minutes to ready ourselves to offer worship to our king today? Did we take five minutes or did we just show up? Now, if there's a thing amongst all these things that really seems to provoke God in Isaiah to anger against his people, it's when they choose to place their trust first and foremost in something or someone other than God himself. Just drives God crazy in Isaiah. Misplaced trust really brings from God stinging indictments. Listen to chapter 2, starting in verse 6. You, God, have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, for they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. You could update this. There's no end to their big screens. Their land is full of Lexus and BMWs. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Isaiah says, do not forgive them. See, they trusted in, they delighted in their silver and gold more than God. In this way, I think they're a lot like us. They face the same temptations. 
that we face. John Maxwell writes of his 14-year-old son, Joel. He says he has his first job, and he brought home his first official paycheck. He says, boy, was he thrilled. He came home, he showed his dad his paycheck, and he marched into the room where his mom was, and this is what he said. You know, I've thought it over, and I'm not sure that I can afford to tithe. Maxwell says he has more money in his hand than he's ever had before. And what happens? All of a sudden, he says, I really need this money for something else. Out of the mouth of a 14-year-old boy, true to his human nature, comes this question. Where do I put God? Is he first? Is he second? Is he fifth? Is he 23rd in my life? Where is God? And will I trust him by my obedience in my generosity. They trusted in their silver and gold, and they trusted in men, especially alliances with other nations around them. Over in chapter 30, woe to the obstinate children, children of Judah, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. And the same thing in the next chapter. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. Now this morning, who is your Egypt? Who are you tempted to trust in when God doesn't show up on your timetable? I mean, could that be the government? Could that be an insurance company? Employee benefits? Even family? See, the people of Judah were also trusting in themselves. In chapter 22, it says that you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. So they're building their own protection here. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not, you did not look to the one who made it. Or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. They are trusting in what God provided and not looking to the one who provided it. Does that sound familiar? What are you trusting in? The great indicator in terms of whether or not you are trusting God, is whether you are praying about it. If you're not praying about it, you're probably not trusting God. One of my favorite, provocative, uncomfortable, but helpful sayings is simply this, a day without prayer is a boast against God. How many days last week did you boast against God? See, this prayerless planning, this hoping in government or insurance or employee benefits or whatever drives God crazy in Isaiah. It is a betrayal of who he is and all he has done for us. 
that we would trust another before him. And so the prophet Isaiah, he's calling us today to repent of this foolishness and trust God. He is urging us to repent and get out of the ditch of self-reliance and self-absorption and trust and honor God. So this morning, will you? We skate through Isaiah today. You might get dinged. Will you repent? Will you agree with God that that dishonors him, that it's sin? And will you turn from it? At the close of the service, I'll give you that opportunity. Would you be so radically obedient and so bold that your first step of obedience would be to come down here on your knees before God publicly and confess your sin and realign your heart? For us to share in God's mission, we have to be people who trust in Him. We can't share in the mission from the ditch. The prophet comes to rescue us from the ditch. Now, much of this early section of Isaiah is given over not just to the judgment of God's own people, but also of the nations. Chapters 13 to 23, just judgment after judgment on nation after nation surrounding Israel. But this first section, I want you to see, is not without grace. Please don't miss it. It's called the book of judgment, but there's grace. Oh, in every chapter we find it. But especially we find it in these beautiful pointers to Christ that may sound familiar to you. Chapter 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 700 years before the birth of Christ. The people walking in darkness, chapter 9 says, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, all throughout Isaiah, he's readying us for the king. The people are in in terrific suffering, and he's pointing them to the king. The king is coming. As a babe, but he is coming. Now, the closing chapters of this first section, this book of judgment in Isaiah, chapters 35 to 39, he changes out of his prophetic mode and he tells a historical story, a narrative like what we've been used to been reading. It's the account of King Hezekiah. And it serves to set up this prophecy by Isaiah of Judah being carried off into captivity. By Babylon. This is what it says in chapter 39. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, to King Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And Isaiah paints this portrait of the future. Some 150 years in the future, he looks 
and sees that Judah too will be carried off into captivity. And he names the nation and he names the king elsewhere. Or at least the line of the king. As God reveals to him what will happen amongst his people. See, the rest of the book now turns to address this captivity that's coming. The rest of the book, the book of hope and comfort, is designed to sustain God's people during this time of coming suffering. The Babylonian captivity. So you, you should know, if you are suffering today, this is your book. The back end of Isaiah is written for you to strengthen you, to keep you out of the ditch so that you can walk in God's good plan all of your days. And throughout this back section, there's a stunning, absolutely stunning portrait of God that emerges. Um, Listen to it. Some of it you've already heard read, but listen again to these verses. The sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. And he gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did, he, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one, no one can fathom. I want you to listen now how much God loves his people. Listen to what Isaiah says about this. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, God says, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, 
nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they're my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. See, this is, this is just like a glimpse of Isaiah's portrait of God. And if you want to see God in his glory and in all of his compassion, read Isaiah. Read these latter chapters where he puts God on display. See, God is speaking through Isaiah to prepare Judah, his people, for a coming captivity that they must endure at the hands of the Babylonians. So he paints for them a picture of his deliverance. But not just deliverance from that captivity. It's a picture that looks through that captivity to the ultimate deliverance at the end of time that will come by the Messiah. And it's not just for the people of Israel. It's for all peoples. It's for us. It's for the nations. You remember that God chose a people to be his own so that they would be a blessing to all peoples. And God has this stunning future in store for his people, Israel, but not just for Israel. It's for all peoples. And this vision for all peoples, for the nations, it starts Isaiah, it peppers throughout, and it ends it. Look, chapter 2, right at the beginning. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. God's going to be exalted above all others. And it will be raised above the hills, and all nations, all nations are going to stream to that mountain. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths, and the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's how it starts. Listen to how it ends. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, God says, am about to come and gather all nations in all tongues, and they will come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. God's passion, his mission, is that all of his creation, all peoples, would worship him. Now, the way that that happens, according to Isaiah, is through someone called a suffering servant of, of the Lord. You remember, he's writing this as a hope for people who are suffering, going to suffer terribly under the Babylonian captivity. And this is the core of their hope, this one who is a servant of the Lord who suffers so. You remember a video in um, chapter 61. It used this kind of language. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The servant is speaking, this servant king. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness of the prisoners, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So that's the portrait that Isaiah paints of this coming servant king in whom the suffering people hope 700 years before Christ. Now Christ comes on the scene and in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes up to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. What scroll do you think they handed Jesus? Isaiah. Where do you think Jesus looked in Isaiah? He he finds this place, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture of the servant king from 700 years ago by Isaiah, today this scripture, it's fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus is saying in most dramatic fashion, I am the servant king. I am the savior. I am the Messiah. And I have come for you. And the imagery in the end of Isaiah of Christ is so powerful and so vivid. Chapter 53 speaks of Christ in terms that are just powerfully instructive of Christ's work on the cross 700 years before he accomplished it. Surely, it says, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah gives hope to his people that there is coming someone who will bear the penalty for their sins. And he says, our sins are crushing things. They are things that bring an unbearable penalty to all of us because all of us have those kind of sins. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. He continues on, he says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He bore this penalty willingly. There's not even a word of resistance, Isaiah tells us. 
He bears the penalty for our sin and it was a kind of death penalty. And he did it and he was pure and he was without sin. And as the New Testament tells us, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And Isaiah finishes this way. He says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This was the will of God, not some colossal mistake. The servant came to die, not for his own sin, for yours, for mine. And though he should suffer and die, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be given a place and a portion with the great. This is the great hope that Isaiah extends for those who are facing suffering. This morning, the question is, will you trust this God, this Savior? Will you trust Him to bear the penalty for your sin? If you're here today, you've never trusted Christ. Is this Savior, is this the Savior you want? Would you trust Christ today? Would you come to Him in faith? And say, I believe that the prophecies of Isaiah are true in you, Jesus, and I want to walk in your ways. I repent of my sin, and I trust in what you have done for me. Will those of you who claim to follow trust this God and no other today? Will you take some risks to follow? Will you go where it's not safe? Will you travel or maybe live where you're not comfortable? Will you stop hoarding and share with those who are in need? Will you stop worrying about retirement when you haven't been generous first? Will you stop this endless succession of prayerless days and trust each day to the Lord? Will you repent? trust God today. Let's stand and worship our God with our lips, with our hearts, and with our obedience as we declare hallelujah. What a Savior.